Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Claire Wilson. Welcome to the show episode 197 and we're recording this on the 7th of June and in the pod with us today we have Michael LePage, James Deneen and Alison George. On the show this week we have a new explanation for pregnancy sickness and a potential treatment. We're going to New York as it is enveloped in the smoke from Canada's wildfires and we report on the world's biggest ever Turing test. We also get up close to the rare and beautiful ghost orchid. To start, can we just imagine the theme tune to Indiana Jones here? Can you anyone sing that? Da, 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 yeah, da, that's da, da, da. it. <laughs> so um, this is because we're going to start with the new findings about Homo naledi. That's the extinct human that was first discovered in 2013. Ali, now I remember reporting on this back then and it was sensational. And it really blew up the world of human evolution, didn't it? Um, remind us what it is. Yes, this was found deep in a cave system in South Africa and declared a new species in 2015. It's quite small, about 144 centimetres tall, and it has a strange mix of primitive and modern features. And most strikingly, its brain is about a third of the size of ours. Yeah, so a brain kind of the size of a chimp's. And that was the mad thing, wasn't it? Because according to what we think we know about human evolution, human abilities, um, this person let's say this person it could do things that we don't see chimps doing and that we we didn't expect to see in apes with um, brains that size yes it may have deliberately buried its dead which is something very striking and it may have made deliberately engraved signs on the cave walls and this is potentially prompting a rethink about the origins of complex human behaviors and cognition As you say, these complex behaviours that we once thought were only the domain of large-brained creatures like us. Mm. So Lee Berger, who is the paleoanthropologist... He's the Indiana Jones reference (laughs) here, basically, isn't he? He wears the hat. Yeah. He does literally wear the Indiana Jones hat. Um, He's quite a swashbuckling swashbuckling (laughs) character. Um, When I spoke to him, he said... um, my mind is blown. What much of what we thought about the origins of intelligence and the cognitive powers of having a big brain clearly just died. Wow. Yeah, I mean, everything about this story is quite incredible, isn't it? Just starting from the way they found the cave and got into the cave and they had to squeeze through this tiny passage to access parts of the cave. And it's really quite a shocking video to watch. We'll post a link to it. I mean, it sounds like a movie and, and actually it is going to be a movie, isn't it? It's on Netflix. Yeah, I think it's coming out in the summer and it is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell us more about the latest. Okay, just to bring you up to speed, in 2021, the team found an infant skull 
in a narrow fissure that's almost impossible to access. So this indicates that this hominin deliberately interred its dead in the caves. They didn't just fall in there or wash in there. Mm. And this also implies that this hominin also was able to control fire because how else could it get through this very dark labyrinth of passages? And indeed, in December, uh, Lee Berger announced evidence of extensive fire use in the cave system, such as soot, hearth and burnt bones. Yeah. And when you say he announced this evidence, he does just announce it, doesn't he? He doesn't sort of go through peer review like we have come to expect most scientists. He, he does his own thing. And are people a bit, you know, put out about that? Well, he only does that sometimes. He did that with a fire discovery. Mm. And yes, not everyone's impressed by that. And certainly there's lots of debate over um, the latest discovery he's announced. But these have indeed been published in a peer-reviewed journal. And they're very intriguing. Okay. All right. Tell us about these etchings then. Okay, what uh, they found, in fact, Berger himself found them. He had to lose uh, 25 kilograms of weight in order to squeeze through these passages, which are... A nightmare, even if you haven't got claustrophobia. 25 kilos. I mean, he should make the burger diet and uh, market that. That's a that's good. That's a lot. Yeah, I think he was pretty desperate to go and see yeah. where these humans uh, be, had been yeah. uh, doing all these interesting things. Yeah. And in three different areas on the walls, there were engravings of geometric shapes that are like crosshatches and triangles and ladder shapes. Mm. And this is incredibly hard dolomite rock. So you couldn't just, you didn't accidentally scratch these things. You had to have gone to considerable effort to make these marks. Wow. Uh, It's actually giving you the chills a bit, that, to think that this ape-like creature, you know, was making marks, making some sort of drawings on the walls. Yeah, to be be fair, that we don't know for sure that Homer and Naledi made these marks because they haven't been dated yet, but Mm. there's no evidence of anyone else being in the system apart from them. Mm. And we know that Neanderthals created similar symbols more than 60,000 years ago, and so did uh, modern humans in southern Africa um, around 80,000 years ago. But this is really amazing because if these symbols in the Homer and Naledi caves uh, were made by Homer and Naledi, they could be far older. So it's really uh, intriguing finding. And made by a, a creature with a much smaller brain than Neanderthals or, or us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we really don't know how Homo Lenedi fits into the human family tree, hmm. but its um, morphology, it, the way it's built, suggests that its common as- ancestor with us Neanderthals may have been, lived about a million years ago or longer. Um, however, we know that Homo Naledi itself was alive around 241,000 years ago to 335,000 years ago. It may have been around more recently than that as well. So it's likely that it existed with Homo sapiens in Africa. Wow, that's incredible. What about these scratchings? Has anyone attempted to interpret what these scratches mean? Well, they were only found very recently and they haven't been properly analysed yet. And we will, for sure, we'll never know the exact meaning. You know, an equal sign means something to us, but it wouldn't mean anything to someone who didn't grow up with our Mm. education system. But what's certain is that they probably were very meaningful to the people who made them as they've gone to considerable effort to make these engravings. And the other striking thing is that they're very close to what seem to be deliberate burials in the ground. Well, so... But you can't dig in that ground, right? It's a cave. Oh, well, there's sediment on the floor. Oh, right. Okay. And at one place in one of the chambers, the team found bone and teeth fragments seemingly from a single body in an area of disturbed soil, just like a grave. And although this uh, study is only preliminary, 
the researchers argue from the orientation of the bones and the soil disturbance that this was a deliberate burial in a pit that had been dug out and then uh, the body put in and then covered in in sediment, which is a very significant form of complex behaviour. Yeah. And if confirmed, these burials would predate the earliest known human burials in Africa by at least 160,000 years. Wow. I mean, with all these things that taking the bodies into the cave and using torches in organised gangs to do it. It's really remarkable. And I saw Chris Stringer of the Natural History Museum saying that, you know, it implies the existence of a culture of a different species, not not related to us. Yes, um, it's quite incredible. Um, we're beginning to build up a remarkable picture of these um, humans who in some ways were nothing like us, with a brain very different to ours, yet behaving in some very similar ways to us. Okay, let's go to New York now, which, according to a live ranking of air pollution on the IQ Air website that I'm looking at right now, it has the second worst air pollution of any major city in the world, second only to New Delhi. So, James, you're in Manhattan. What's it like? Can you breathe? Yes, I can breathe. Uh, Things are a bit clearer than yesterday, but there is a distinct gray haze in the air and the sun has a sort of odd tangerine colored glow and it also smells like smoke like a big campfire Uh Uh, more people are wearing masks than usual i've noticed and i know some people who are avoiding commutes and staying indoors because of the smoke in my apartment we shut all the windows and ran an air purifier all night which did seem to help a bit so all this pollution is all due to smoke from wildfires in canada is that right right Most of the smoke here is from hundreds of fires that are burning out of control across Canada, but particularly in eastern Canada in Quebec. There are also numerous fires that have been burning for weeks in the western provinces of Alberta and British Columbia. Even before the summer fire season, these fires released record amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. In May, they released almost 55 million tons, which is more than double the carbon emitted by wildfires in any May since estimates began in 2003. Wow, yeah, we we did a story on that in May. And so it was expected that the, the with this much smoke, it would drift over. Um, and we've seen it's gone to Massachusetts, much of North America. But like, uh, you know, it feels like climate change is banging on the door of New York City now, isn't it? Totally. It's worth saying the smoke is not just affecting New York City, but as you say, large parts of the northern U.S. and parts of Canada, there just happen to be lots of uh, people, in particular reporters in New York City. Um, (laughs) But the smoke is all over. Forecasts even show some smoke traveling over your way across the Atlantic to Europe. There's already some that has made it to Scandinavia. So this is a reminder that even places far from wildfires can be affected by them. And you brought up climate change. We know that as conditions become hotter and many places become drier with climate change, we'll get more wildfires and more intense wildfires. But still, I think it's shocking to see the scale of it when it happens. There were some 2.7 million hectares of forest burned in Canada in May. This year, 4 million hectares have burned in Canada. There are also large fires burning in central and eastern Russia at the moment, though they don't seem to be contributing to the smoke problem here. And what about, you know, people's health? So isn't it World Running Day today? And I saw that the New York Roadrunners, the organisation that owns and stages the New York City Marathon, aren't they advising people not to run or to consider at least not running today because of the health threat? 
Yeah, that's smart to try to stay inside as much as possible. And that's what a lot of the health advisories recommend. Air pollution from wildfire smoke is particularly nasty because it's largely made up of fine particulate matter pollution or PM 2.5. It doesn't feel good to breathe and it can irritate the eyes, nose and throat and can be particularly bad for people with asthma or heart disease and also the very young and elderly people. I also think it's worth saying, while this smoke will eventually blow over here, the chronic exposure to high levels of air pollution that can affect cities like New Delhi can have wide ranging effects on health, like increased rates mm -hmm. of respiratory disease and some cancers. So mm -hmm. even though we're, we're getting used to dealing with high levels of air pollution here, it will remain a problem in many other places. And James, are New Yorkers, is anyone freaking out a bit or are they just sort of having a shrugging it off in a New York style like, nah? Yeah, I, on the commute this morning, it seemed like people were pretty much going about their business as normal. Um, I'm sure that there are some people who are freaking out about it, but you know, everyone will do their own thing. Let's take a break for some messages. We have a new free newsletter to tell you about, Business Insight. Yeah, this is created for business leaders, scientists and policymakers. It's an e-newsletter. It covers critical topics at the intersection of science and business. So it offers you a first look at the latest ideas and innovations and investments in a wide range of scientific fields. It will challenge your mind and help you think about the world differently, giving you an edge at work. Topics coming up include online safety, data regulation, AI text generation and insider threats to cybersecurity. You'll get the newsletter every two weeks for free. To register, just go to newscientist.com slash business insights. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. And for Life Form of the Week, this week, Rowan's been orchid hunting. Now, I've come to the orchid house in Kew Gardens to see the Florida ghost orchid, uh, which is blooming for the first time in the UK. Now, this orchid, the ghost orchid, is famous, or at least I knew about it first because of the book, The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, or actually the, the, move, the loose adaptation of it <laughs> called Adaptation, the Charlie Kaufman film. I'm here with Arno ribera Tort, um, a botanical horticulturalist at Kew, and he's going to tell me about this wonderful little thing. Can you, can you describe it for us, Arno? Yeah, so the ghost orchid is a leafless orchid, so it doesn't have leaves. And it's basically this root mass where a spike, a flower spike comes out of it. And then you have this sort of floating 
flower, mm. which gives it uh, its name. Yeah, okay, so it's beautifully sort of suspended there. And yeah, it's a leafless orchid. So the roots, you can see, we can see like four or five kind of thick roots compared to the rest of the flower. Um, and the, the roots themselves photosynthesize, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, this group of orchids basically lost leaves through evolution and roots completely took this role of photosynthesizing. Okay. And I read that, so the, the Latin name is dendrophylax, and, and that means tree guardian, because the, the roots wrap around the, the tree, and they're not parasitizing it. So it's not, it's not a misnomer. It's actually, you know, it's a nice name for, a, for this thing that wraps around the tree. It is indeed. And if you see, like, pictures of um, adult or very big specimens, you see that they create this sort of shield. So actually the name, I think, is one of the coolest and most well-chosen names. Yeah. And when you say adult specimen, how long do they live for? Well, um, it depends on the conditions in the habitat. Now, I'm not sure, but I would say that the, all the specimens out there must be a few dec- decades old, wow. at least. Wow. And, and this, this, plant, this plant here in Kew, um, it germinated in 2014, so it's actually nine years old now. Wow. Although people might see it's quite a small specimen, yeah. Um, it has, yeah, it's quite old. Yeah. And this was cultivated, right? So someone's figured out how to grow these in the lab, effectively, right? Um, so how, how do you go about that? And how do, how do you fertilise a plant when the moth isn't there to do it for you? Well, in that case, you need to do hand pollination. And for this particular plant, the hand pollination occurred in the Panther Refuge in southern Florida. And then it was pollinated in summer 2014. And then seeds were germinated in the lab by the University of Florida. Yeah. And then University of Florida distributed the seedlings to different botanic gardens, uh, namely Chicago Botanic Garden, um, Naples Botanic Garden, etc. And the plant we have here in Kew is actually one of the plants from Chicago. And uh, is this living here now forever, or have you got to give it back? No, no. Uh, Chicago donated it to Kew. So, oh, okay. you know, yeah, it will now be part of the collection Fantastic. here. Fantastic. And, yeah, it is very rare. Uh, it's endangered. What, what, what are the reasons mainly for its, um, you know, its rarity and why it was such a target for poachers? So this orchid or this group of orchids are not too easy to grow in cultivation. And therefore, if you want a big specimen, people go to the wild and poach them. However, this plant um, is also endangered because for World War II, there was lots of logging of cypress trees. Mm. So uh, since this plant grows on cypress trees, then... Yeah, the habitat loss caused by that also decimated the population of ghost orchids. So now in the wild in Florida, you have around 1,500 plants, which is not much. And then you have 500 more in Cuba. And that is literally the whole the world population of this species. It is indeed. Yeah, yeah, so it's incredibly rare. And is it all orchids that have to form some sort of symbiosis or relationship with fungi to germinate? And certainly this one does. Yeah, all of them do, actually, because orchids don't have uh, carbon storage in their seeds, and therefore they have to rely on this relationship with particular fungi called orchid mycorrhizal fungi to start the whole germination process. That's also one of the reasons why orchids are said to be good bioindicators. So you can assess the health of an ecosystem based on orchids, because since they have quite a specific and narrow interaction with both fungi but also with pollinators. If one of these connections is lost, then the orchid will also be lost. So you're, you're an orchid specialist. What is it about orchids that, you know, excited you in the first place? 
I think one of the most ex exciting things about the family is that it's one of the largest. So orchids are the second largest plant family with more or less about 30,000 species. Mm. And if you take into account then like commercial hybrids or cultivars, then this extends to the hundreds of thousands. So I think the diversity within the family and also like all these different flower morphologies and shapes that you can see, which can be completely different from one another. Yeah. I think that's what makes orchids interesting. Yeah. Um, Darwin wrote, I think it was his, the first book he wrote after Origin of Species was about orchid, his orchid book. And he, didn't he predict the existence of a moth based on the morphology of an orchid flower? He thought there must be a, a moth with a, or a butterfly with a, a tongue long enough to get down and, and, and pollinate that species. And, it, and, and then it eventually it was discovered. So yeah, the morphology is incredible of these things, isn't it? Yeah, and... Now that you mentioned Darwin's orchid, Darwin's orchid, Angraecum sesquipedale, is a Madagascan plant, but it belongs to the exact same group of this ghost orchid. Oh, wow. Wow, even yeah. though they're separated, massively separated. Yeah, they? so that group is mostly African, but you had, well, basically now you have two uh, genera in the Caribbean too, which are the exception wow. from those African groups. Wow. Okay, so it is similar, a bit similar to... Well, it's in the same group as, as Darwin's orchid. Yeah, but also, like, it's, they are both moth-pollinated. You can yeah. see both have quite a long nectar spur. I yeah. mean, Darwin's orchid is known for that, but also this one has quite a long one. Both they are white in colour, they emit scent during the night, etc., etc. Um, and Arno, do you take your work home with you? Do you, have, do you grow orchids at home? I do, and I think that's a common thing for all of us working here. At home, I have... I must have, what, three or four dozen orchids at Whoa. least. I mean, most of them miniature ones, though. Yeah. So they don't, they don't occupy that much space. You could exhibit your house, you know, get, get some customers to come around and have a look. I guess I, I could. <laughs> I'm not sure. I do have quite a few nice species, though. Uh, and the nice thing is that you always have something in flower, which is cool. Thanks so much to Kew Gardens and to Arno Ribera-Tort uh, for joining me on the pod for those lovely insights about orchids. OK, Michael, this week you've written about potential ways to prevent and treat morning sickness or pregnancy sickness, as it's properly called, because, it, of course, it doesn't just happen in the mornings, as I can definitely vouch <laughs> for. So my, can you tell us about it, Michael? Yes, nausea and vomiting is really common during pregnancy, obviously. And in some women, it can become so serious that they get dehydrated and they lose weight. Uh, this is a condition called hyperemesis gravidarium. There's growing evidence that the cause is a hormone called GDF15. And now there's this new study out by a big team that I think really settles it. But what's really interesting is that the study not only suggests ways to treat morning sickness, it also suggests ways to prevent it. Ah, well, that's what's really needed. Yeah. So how could we prevent it? Well, we've all got a bit of GDF-15 in our blood. What this paper shows is that the placenta produces lots of GDF-15 that gets into the blood of the mother. And so it's a rise in GDF-15 in pregnant women that causes morning sickness. But the crucial thing in this paper is that it shows why some women are much less affected than others. Basically, if you've got relatively high levels of GDF-15 in your blood before pregnancy, you become desensitized to it. And then when you get pregnancy and levels go up a bit, you don't get nearly as much morning sickness in response. Okay, so, so does that mean there's a lot of kind of natural variation in how much GDF-15 women have before they get pregnant? Yes, so GDF-15 is the body's way of telling the brain, don't eat anymore and chuck up what you have <laughs> eating. Um, 
So it, it's kind of our way of responding to being poisoned, for instance. And GDF 15 levels are raised in lots of illnesses. For instance, the team did a survey showing that women who have the blood disorder, beta thalassemia, are much less likely to get morning sickness. And there's also a genetic component. So previous studies have found that some women have genetic variants that make them much more likely to get morning sickness and become seriously ill. And it turns out that these women produce much less GDF-15. Uh-huh. And so okay. they're much more sensitive to it. Okay. And so like, how could we combat this? Could we give people GDF-15 before they get pregnant to make them less sensitive? Or could we prevent the hyperemesis gravidarum? That's a hope, yes. Uh, that obviously needs to be tested in a trial, and there are difficulties with giving people a substance that can make the meal, so that has to be done very carefully. Uh, the other possibility for treating these conditions is that we could give women an antibiotic that binds to this hormone and mops it up and stops the levels getting as high. And the great news is that there are actually several companies that are already developing these kinds of antibodies to treat various other conditions. Uh-huh. And is there a concern about safety, you know, in the fear in giving any new drugs in pregnancy is that they might affect the unborn child, of course? Yes. So, I mean, the history here is that thalidomide was a a treatment for morning sickness used in the 1950s that turned out to cause very severe birth defects. And so everyone in the field is very, very aware of the Mm -hmm. the need to ensure that any treatment is, is totally safe. I mean, the team think that antibodies that bind to GDF-15 would be completely safe, but they say what can be done is to modify these antibodies in a way that they don't get across the placenta and into the fetus, and that will make doubly sure that there are absolutely no effects on on Mm -hmm. children. What I love about this story is that we know the placenta is, is made by paternal genes, it is made by the genes of the father, and there's this idea that pregnancy sickness is manipulated by the placenta to prevent the woman, the mother, eating potentially damaging food at critical moments of fetal development. So when you said that GDF-15 is made by the placenta, that's, that was the first thing I thought of, this placental manipulation idea. Yeah, so these findings are completely consistent with that idea mm. that, that the placenta produces this to help protect the unborn child. But we can't be sure why, why it evolved. I mean, it could also just be an accidental side effect of pregnancy. We just, it's very hard to establish why these things Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the sci-fi alert, where we discuss something in the news that's already happened in science fiction. And look, we, we haven't talked about the rise of AI for a few weeks on the pod. And this caught my eye this week, a massive version of the Turing test mm. taken by more than 1.5 million people. And it shows that we at the moment we can only just tell AIs apart from humans. Yeah, we can only just tell them apart. So the, the Turing test, to recap on that, but that was Alan Turing's proposal of a conversation that takes place via text between both a person and a machine and you have to guess which is which and if you can't tell the difference if you can't tell which one is the machine then the machine passes the Turing test Uh Um, and it's been seen as a watershed that a line that if machines cross this then that's when we start to worry well maybe we should be worried because the results are that it's been pretty much passed in these kind of very brief conversations. And, and this is the sort of chat GPT type conversations, yes. right? Yes. So this is an online game inspired by the Turing test. And in this version, a player can swap messages 
with either a large language model like GPT-4 or with another human player. And then they have two minutes to work out who or what they are interacting with. Mm. And so when this was done one and a half million times, yes. yes, well, the result is people could only tell if they were dealing with another human or AI 68% of the time. But if they were only given conversations with AI to base their guesses on, they only got it right 60% of the time. So that means 40% of people mistakenly identified an AI as human. And that, that's not much better than tossing a coin. No. I mean, and this is why some people have started saying that AIs should be forced to self-identify as such at the start of any interaction with them so that we're not completely fooled and cheated in the future. Yeah. And this sort of thing will, I guess, strengthen uh, this argument. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it makes sense. And if conversations go on longer, then at the moment the AIs do fail the test more. But come on, they're only going to get better and better at this, yeah. especially with all this training on how to pass the Turing test that's now available to them. And of course, many interactions online are only quite short, right? Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, uh, how do you know a podcast is not made uh-huh. by an AI? Are you an AI? <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing, though, is that the Turing test was is like 50 years old now, the idea of it. And um, lots of people say it's time for something else because we need to, a different way of measuring um, what an AI can do other than just whether it can mimic a human's response. Yeah. So the researcher who ran this mass Turing test says we should still be concerned and we should discuss at least whether people be informed about whether they're talking to a person or not, or have a company let people talk to customer service bots without acknowledging the fact that they're robots. Yeah. I mean, you know, some in some ways it might be better speaking with a bot when you're on a customer service. You know, you wouldn't have to wait. Oh, you wouldn't I, have to wait 30 minutes always, to, before they talk to you. Yeah, but you, you always right? know they're never as good as a, as a no. human. Yeah. It does... Um, remind me, this brings me to the sci-fi link of this this segment, which is uh, the Spike Jones film from 2013, Her, um, and that's the one with Joaquin Phoenix when he falls in love with an AI. I mean, she was voiced by Scarlett Johansson, so... (laughs) So you can't blame him. Yeah, um, yes, indeed. And that's also the second Spike Jones reference uh, of the podcast, as we already had adaptation uh, earlier in Life Form of the Week. Yeah, you need to broaden your references, Rowan. I will, I will. So on that note, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to our guests, Michael LePage, James Deneen and Alison George. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Claire Wilson. Thanks for listening to New Scientist Podcasts. Do subscribe to our show on the app you're listening to now and check out our archive. It's all free. And we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.